Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Now, don't be surprised. Two verses today. All right? Now, two verses next week, too, because they'll be the same, too. Uh, but we're going to use two today, just to be different. And uh, we're going to look at verse 33 and verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. And you might be on the same page where the chapter ends. You can see it's coming. We're, we're getting close to that. We're aiming by Easter. We'll see. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We're going to give those verses our attention today. Heavenly Father, as we have your word in front of us, the opportunity that you've given to us once again to look into this beautiful, wonderful word. Thank you for the message that it has for us today, especially as we look at these words. You have uh, so blessed us with a copy of your Bible, of your scriptures. And we are indeed blessed people for spending time in it. So, may this next uh, part of our church service today be very, very important in our lives. May it do its work as we spend time in your word. May it, it saturate our hearts and our minds. And may it do that thing that makes us much more like Christ and much more sure of what you're doing in our lives and much more appreciative of who you are. Do a great work in our hearts, every one of us here today, because of your word, your living word, that we have the privilege of seeing right now. Challenge us with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I say this week after week, but this has been my ambition to convince you of God's great love for you. This chapter does that. Uh, over and over again, that's what I try to do each week. But, you know, God does that constantly with you. All day long, all the time. God is expressing his great love for you. He's never finished demonstrating that. There was a verse I was uh, thinking on this morning, and it's been in my head for a couple of days, and probably because I was preparing the message, it just popped in there, and it didn't make it to my notes until this morning. I just wrote it on the side there as I was thinking about it. When Jesus was in the upper room, and just before he was to go out to the garden, and, and there he would be arrested, and then put on trial through the night, and crucified by 9 o'clock in the morning on the cross, the words that he shared in John chapter 13, 14, 15, powerful, powerful section of Scripture, and yet, in the midst of that, almost right smack in the middle of the whole dialogue, he made this comment, and you know it very well. Greater love has no one than this. And what is that? That one should lay down his life for his friends. I could look over the course of my life and the friends that I have and enjoy and not one of them has done that. 
I'm kind of glad for that, to tell the truth. But not one of the friends I've had here on this earth that I know of has given their life for me. But I have a friend. I have a friend beyond all friends, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who did lay down his life for me. Out of love. That's a powerful thing, isn't it? That's a powerful thing. And as we go into this passage, it's no surprise that the concept, or not the concept so much, but the actual reality that Jesus died for us is just all over the page suddenly as you talk about love. That is God's measuring tool. What is love? Love is when you lay down your life for your friends. But more than just a, a sacrifice of sorts, something that has good results. And that's what his death has done for us. It's changed us forever. Dealt with our sin issue. Gave us a right standing before God. Gave to us this hope and this peace that we know right now. Gave to us a future that we're going to enjoy forever. He has accomplished so much. And that's why we could come back here every single Sunday, dig into God's Word, and learn more and more and more about what He has done for us. It's that kind of a love, with that kind of a result, and it's powerful. And so, as I bring you into this passage again, I, I make no apology for saying, let's talk about it one more time, because it's that deep, and it keeps going. I think, though, as this whole chapter, I've given the title, The Security of the Believer. If you go on our website to uh, listen to one of the sermons in this, every one of them are there. This is number 42, I believe. Uh, and there's a big pile of them on the website. And you can pull up any single one. They all have the same title, The Security of the Believer. Every single one of them do. If some, somebody from another part of our world pulls up our website, they're going to think, that's all that guy ever talks about. Because that's what you see for 42 sermons, is the security of the believer. But you know what? I'm aiming at something in, intentional here. It's because we tend to doubt. And we do, don't we? We have days. We have periods in our life. We have challenges that come up. And sometimes when I reflect on this, and I don't know if it's scientific, theological, or what, but this is what I see. Sometimes I think the biggest enemy to the believer's security is the believer himself. He doubts God's love. Struggles with it from time to time. He questions the truth. Now, maybe we don't verbalize it. Maybe we don't actually state it. Sometimes we live by some bad theology and we don't even know it. We allow it. On bad days, we sometimes think we have the right to feel bad and act bad and think bad. Why is that? I don't know. It just does, right? It happens. We go down those avenues where we, we doubt all these things, and then, then we get into this kind of uh, mentality that, you know, the way you get God's love is if you're on his good side. That means you have to have done something to stay on his good side, and, and we play that little game that we, we try to, to do what's right because God rewards that, and then we feel loved. And then if we do something we know is not right, whether it's intentional or even out of neglect, 
we forget something or we're, we just don't spend time in his word like we should or, you know, something like that. We tend to go down the other side of that, don't we? We start to wonder, well, you know, God loves so-and-so more than God loves me. Or, I don't feel so loved today. Or, these kind of thoughts tend to invade into our minds, and, and so we try hard to stay on God's good side, and yet sometimes you don't feel like you measure up. Been there before? I know I know that story very well. I struggled with it a great deal, especially as a teenager. I was being bombarded, I've already told you, I was being bombarded with a message each week that uh, I needed to get things right because I'd messed up. And we did not, we were not taught how secure we were in God's love. We were told to fear it, to question it, to wonder if it was still there. We had to earn it. And really, that's the way I grew up in that thinking is, is on that side. But here's where it really came practical for me. Uh, I devoured the daily bread every week. First thing, woke up, I kept it right beside the side of the bed. And I'd pull that out and I'd read it first thing because I was sure if I didn't, God was going to be mad at me all day long. I turned it into a, uh, what's the right word for this? It was a ritual, but it was even more than that. It was a phobia of sorts that, that I lived by this thing that, that if, I did not do that. God would be mad at me. And so I expected on days that I forgot, even if I didn't mean to forget, and I forgot, I expected flat tires, I expected everything. You name it, it was going to all come unglued. Because I was on God's bad side. And that's why I share it with you this way, folks, because I know I'm not alone in this. I know we live that way, and we don't want to. We don't want to think like that, but we've been there, haven't we? We've, we've, we've looked at God's love kind of like watching the stock market. We, we've watched it, you know, in, and all of it, quite honestly, is based on us and not on Him. That's what I'm hoping to do in this passage. Because Romans chapter 8 does not tell you to do anything. It's all what God has done for you. How God loves you. What God did to show you that. That's what I've been showing you week after week. And so, as we go into this section, there's no surprise here at all that when you start to ask questions in verse 33 and verse 34, and there are two questions here that we're going to contemplate, the answer goes right back to the throne of God. Every single time. It goes right back to the throne of God. Now, we're in the middle, really, in verse 33 and 34, we're in the middle of one sentence in the Greek, and it starts in verse 31, and it ends in verse 34. That's just one sentence there. And the sentence is this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, you see question marks, and you say grammatically, that's the end of a sentence. Not in the Greek it isn't. <laughs> they don't do it that way. They just keep plowing on, because these are part of their statements. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will you not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. One statement. 
that started with the fact that God is for you. God is for you. And everything in here is to show you the evidence of that. But the questions, I think, are intriguing because those are questions that hit us right in the heart. Verse number 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse number 34, who is the one who condemns? Now, it's almost as if Paul's stating this in such a way like, all right, you want to do it? Come forward, let's hear you. Almost like that. Who's going to stand up and charge? Who's going to stand up and, and uh, condemn? Now, there's good questions here. We're going to look at the questions today, and we're going to look at the answers next week, although I really can't deal with the questions without answers, so you're going to get a little both today. I just have to do it that way. But we will look especially at the questions today. And the first one we see is who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, a charge is an interesting thing. In the Greek word, it's to, to call in somebody for them making an account, giving an account for what they've done or what they, it's to accuse them of something that is wrong, to give them a, a, a chance for questioning, to, to lay a charge at their feet, to uh, begin judicial proceedings against them. It's the first step. It's the accusation form. Very interesting. It is a uh, forensic term. It's used in courts. It's used to impeach. Those kind of words. We're, we're awfully familiar with it if you watch the news any at all. You've seen an, an inundation of that, it seems, lately. But I find this kind of interesting that Paul says this word here. And if you were to trace this word in the New Testament, you're going to find it's nowhere else but in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's the only one who uses it here in Romans 8, but he experienced it in Acts many, 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 many times. The first being in Ephesus. He was accused there. And they took him before the courts in order to charge him. That's Acts chapter 19. And Acts chapter 23. And Acts chapter 26. He's put on trial. And even stood before King Agrippa himself. And in that incredible opportunity Paul had to declare the truth to the king. I mean, the king, however they read this word, but the king said... Paul, do you think in a few moments you're going to make me a Christian? Or, Paul, in a few moments you're going to make me a Christian. It's like, we're not sure which side to go on, but Paul was very persuasive. And in that, he had been accused. So when he uses this word here, I can't help but think of all the memories that would flood through his mind as he's writing these very things. I know this very well. Paul was accused on several different levels because of his, um, his ministry. Now, what's also interesting about this is that it appears to me to be a very intensive type of verb. And that's usually because they, they put the compound together of a preposition with the verb. And to call somebody is one thing, but to call them in... It's more intensive. They're, they're not talking about coming for a surprise birthday party, you know. I mean, it's an intensive action that they're doing. It's an intentional 
type of action that this word is speaking of. And what's interesting is that it's not spoken in such a way like, who might be out there who can do this to you? But who will do this to you? And it seems like it's something that we ought to expect as believers. Do we live in the kind of world that we might get accused because we are Christians? Who can accuse us? Let's just go through a list. I give you four groups this morning. All right? Four groups that might stand up to accuse us. Because he's talking about God's elect, right? All right. The first one I suggest to you is the world. The world. Now, I could add a fifth one, and I'll just put this to the side for a minute. I could say the church. Here's our problem. You know, that does happen in churches. Accusations fly. It's funny. Not funny, but we say funny. It's strange. It shouldn't be this way. But the church that's given the sword of the Spirit tends to turn it on its own people and uh, tear them up too. But I'm going to set that to the side because generally that situation is because somebody's acting like the world. Or maybe both parties are. And so I, I throw it in there. But the, the world, that is a primary uh, physical enemy. We do actually see them. And they do make accusations, don't they? Paul would tell you that, and I've already told you that was primarily Paul's word. The accusation line is used many, many times with him. From the world's position, Paul was guilty of all kinds of terrible things against society. I mean, he was messing up economy. One, he changed a girl who was once demon-possessed and helping out all the, the idolatry going on in the land, and he cast a demon out of her. That messed up businesses all over town. He, he, he changed hearts of people through God's word, and they stopped buying the idols. It hit them economically. But the world also considered him to be an affront to their religion. They had their own worship services and styles and systems and all these things. And, and Paul was accused of turning the world upside down, along with the other disciples. Paul was accused of, of affecting their society, actually telling slaves that they're free in Christ. Wow, was that a change for some of them? There's a lot of things going on. That changed a lot. But then they also accused him of speaking against their emperor. Because he didn't promote emperor worship. So on and on the world accused Paul. He knew that too. But you know the world still has that technique in their, in their arsenal. They still do that. They, matter of fact, they don't like believers proselyting. That's one word for it. They don't like us sharing our faith. They, they believe that we should coexist, folks. They want us to just accept everything else that the world does and treat it all as equals when we know that the truth is that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Only. And we have a message to proclaim. And this world does not like that message because it's so exclusive. It leaves out, you know, all these other religions. Yes, it does. Because they won't save you. So we preach a gospel that the world does not like. They don't like us to do that. But in fact, if you go into some parts of this world and you want to work with tribes inside of countries, 
the government there, so on some occasion, will say, oh, you can go in there and you can teach them how to read or something like that, but don't change them because they're like museum pieces to us. We don't want their society to be changed. I mean, we want it to stay the way it is. And so they're telling you, you can't take even the gospel in there. Because they know the gospel changes lives. They don't want that. They can accuse us of a lot of things. But you know what their favorite is? Pointing out hypocrisy. How often does it hit the headlines, folks? This well-known pastor, this well-known speaker, this well-known... And they get into trouble... Even though the world promotes that, even though Hollywood promotes that, they consider that worthy of accusation when it's against a church person. The hypocrisy is incredible. But it's true, isn't it? We've seen it all our lives. We know it's true. Yes, the world can accuse us. It can accuse us. Satan can accuse us. Now, we could go right into scripture of this one. Satan is the accuser of God's people. Matter of fact, he's restless about it. Scripture says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, this phrase, He is the accuser of our brethren. He's the accuser of our brethren. He accuses them before our God day and night. He is constantly Parading before the throne of God with accusations against God's people. Now, he has bad theology. Don't be surprised by that. The fact is, he thinks that God's going to zap him. <laughs> Boy, that's what he hopes. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, I'm so glad for that. Because every time Satan's standing there, guess who else is there? Our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a relief. But he doesn't quit. That's the reality of it. He does that. Ephesians 6, you know the passage, it's the armor of God. In that passage of the armor of God, verse number 11 and verse number 16, talks about what he's doing. And it says, put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Schemes. Matter of fact, that's in plural. He's got quite a strategy. Bunch of them. He's got a playbook just full. And he's going to keep throwing them. He does that. We, we need the armor of God. The second thing it says, uh, taking on the shield of faith, which, which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now let me tell you this, as simple as it sounds. If somebody's throwing flaming arrows at you, they don't mean to just give you a bad day. They mean to destroy you. And that's his goal. That's, that's frightful, I, I might say, from a human standpoint, who I don't like being, things being thrown at me, to know that that's his technique. Flaming arrows, that's pretty intense. All the more reason to take up the shield of faith and to walk close to the Lord. We say, okay, whew, because that's dangerous. Now, we know he's our accuser. Right? So, can he take a charge, can he charge, accuse the, the brethren? Yeah. We could put him in that category. I'll give you a third category of somebody who might be an accuser. You ready for this? Could be yourself. Your own heart. Your own conscience. 
Now, I'm going to bring that up at the end of the sermon again, okay? I, I just bring that up because just by saying that, a lot of you went, uh-huh, and you know exactly what that would be. So I'll bring that up in a few minutes as we get, I think I can in this morning. Let's see. Um, but that one's also on the list. And the fourth one, who has the right to accuse you? That's God himself. Because he knows everything. He's justified in doing that. Now, we're going to talk about the answer to that next week especially. But I just wanted to bring out the fact that that first question popped up there. And we know it too, don't we? We know it's true. When it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? A lot of things go through our mind, right, with that question. Yes, the potential is there. There's a lot of potential there. Let's set that question down for a minute. All right? You got the feel for it, and it's uncomfortable. So let's look at the second one, too. Who is the one who condemns? Katakrino is a great little Greek word. It's, it's also intensive in nature, and it's the one who judges. It's where the verdict is given. The verdict is laid down. The judgment is laid down. That's the nature of this word. It's, it, it's kind of interesting, and this is what I found intriguing in, in the grammar of the sentence, because the first question, who will bring a charge against God's elect, that's a normal type of verb. And this time in verse number 34, where it says, who will bring a, no, who is the one who condemns, that is a participle. And I say, okay, that's interesting, because that intrigues me. Because what a participle is, is generally a, a action going on at the same time as another action is going on. Usually we find the main verb as what's happening, and then we attach the participle as what's going on at the same time. All right? So I'll just give you an example. If I say, the boy was eating pie, peach pie. The boy was eating peach pie. All right? And you say, okay, eating, that's the main verb. The boy sitting in the chair was eating peach pie. He's doing two things now, isn't he? He's sitting and he's eating. All right, simple picture. Here it is. You ready? This is what, I saw this, I said, ooh, this is heavy. The one who is accusing is also judging at the same time. You see, he's not only the lawyer... How'd that happen? I'm not going on that side anymore. Um, he's not only the lawyer who is bringing the charges, the prosecutor. He's also then runs up and sits in the chair and he makes the judgments on it. Our world is like that when you really think about it. When they accuse somebody, they also suggest the way, great ways to punish them too. They, they already convict them. You know, even though our world or our country, at least, is supposed to be based on the idea of innocent until proven guilty, accusations are considered punishment. Accusations are considered the judgment. Accusations are, it's already been assumed, and now it's followed through with the idea that they're, they're done. Because they were accused. And we do have that a lot in our world, I know. We have that a lot in our world. And that's what rumors usually start with. Start a rumor and it's an accusation. And then it's considered, all right, it's true. It's punishable. And then we punish them even before we've even had a chance to look at it. 
That is a scheme of our enemy. That is. That's in the passage right here that we're looking at. To serve both as the accuser and the judge. To bring the charge and the verdict. As well as the punishment. People had to live under this kind of thing for many, many, many years. We're not unique to it. If you go back to the days of Nehemiah, and I wish I had a whole lot of time this morning, chapter 4 and chapter 6 of the book of Nehemiah, which is a fascinating story. If you want to read that, you know what Nehemiah did, right? Some of you do. Some of you say, yeah. He He rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. He said, okay, well, he was a good carpenter, right? He was, a, he was a mason. He did a good job. If you knew what was going on politically in his day, wow, is that a hard job? You wouldn't have wanted that job. He had enemies all over the place, even so much so that they had to work with one hand with a tool, one hand with a weapon. But as he worked, here's what I found as I read through this. Accusations, the enemy would get angry with him, come and accuse him, he'd pray. And then they'd come back with a letter and they'd read it in front of all the people and they'd make accusations against him, he'd pray. And then they'd try to set up a trap for him and they invited him to come out and visit with them at this great meeting place and he'd pray, he did not go. He went to a friend's house and found that his friend was being paid by his enemies in order to talk him out of his job. And he prayed. And over and over and over again, you would find Nehemiah on his knees, praying to the Lord because he knew that the pressure was intense. The accusations flew all over that book. It makes you uncomfortable to read it. That poor guy. I mean, that was tough. That was tough. I'd go to those stories if I had a lot of time and tell you about them. You could read those. Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah 6, those are the two main passages. If you want to read the life of Hezekiah, you'll find a very interesting story of his in Isaiah 36, where the Assyrian army came down and they started accusations against him because they wanted them to submit to uh, Assyria And he wasn't about to. He was trusting in the Lord. And so they turned that all the way around and they were reading off letters to the people that Hezekiah took away all your gods. How are you ever going to have help when he took away all your gods? He took away all the idols, folks. He left them only the Lord God himself. And yet this enemy didn't see it that way and says, oh, by the way, God himself sent me to take you out. You know, all these incredible accusations and threats and all these things. And Nehemiah took that letter and he spread it out before the Lord, said, Lord, here it is. And I find that very interesting. So many times I could take you to stories like this where, where somebody and their accusations, all the, the pressure, all the things to cave in to the world society to do it their way, they just simply went to the Lord and said, Lord, this is what they say. They didn't know what to come, what would come of that, but they knew where to pray. If you go to a cross, Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross, and according to Luke, his first words out of his mouth was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Luke chapter 23. In case you're wondering, what is he doing there? I'll tell you what it is. It's in First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read this to you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 
through 24, this is what was going on at that cross. Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, that's heavy accusation, he did not revile in return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but, here's the key, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Every time it came the way of Jesus, he would give it to his Father. He'd give it to his Father. He'd give it to his Father. And then Peter would add this in chapter 4 of the same book, in verse number 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The example of Christ, the example of Hezekiah, the example of Nehemiah, sets before us a simple thing. When the accusations come, there's only one you need to turn to. And that is our Lord. Take it to Him. You're going to see He is the answer to those questions in Romans chapter 8. Every time the question is raised, Who can accuse you? Who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? The answer within three words is God. Is your answer kind of makes you think, boy, I need to spend more time before Him. We can go to Him in prayer, can't we? He's our protection, folks. He's our protection from the onslaught of evil associations and accusations. You can put Satan in there, the world in there, even all that you can muster against yourself. That is our protection. But He also gives us the solution. The solution is simple. God is justified because Jesus Christ died for us. There's a lot of theology in that. That's why I gave it for next week especially. But how did Romans 8 start? What was the first verse we looked at? Do you remember? You don't remember? We're starting over. That sounded like a threat, didn't it? I really, it wasn't a threat. I'd love to start all over. Here it is. There is therefore now... No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? That's what he said. Put that in light of the accusations. Put that in light of the condemnations. Remember in John 8, the woman who was caught in the very act? Remember the outcome of that story? When everyone else was gone, Jesus looked up and said, Where are your accusers? <laughs> well, they're gone. He says, and neither do I accuse you. How could he say that? He knew an awful lot about accusations, but he also knew the answer too. He sent her away and told her to sin no more. How about your heart? I promise this. Let me finish with this. Go to 1 John chapter 3. This, this will stick. All right? This will really hit a mark. Because of the four, we can, deal with, we can talk about God, and we will next week especially. We can talk about the world and Satan all we want, but you know the answer is already given to us as to what to do with that. But in 1 John 3, verse 19, look at these words. I was very refreshed when I read these for the first time, and I said, Whoa! 
That hit the mark. Look at them. We know, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Do you know what that just said? That heart, yes, it's got a loud mouth. Oh, it yells, doesn't it? It condemns. It works with that conscience up there and it just says, ah, you don't deserve God's love. You don't worthy of God's love. Oh, you did that again. How terrible. You're, you, you're, you just need thrown out. That's your heart. You've heard it before. God is greater than your heart, folks. Did you see those words? He's greater than your heart. Take it to Him. Why trust that thing? You know, that heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. <laughs> That's what Scripture says. Why do you trust that when you've got a greater God? And when you are assured before Him, the heart problem is solved. I love those words. But I think they're very important. Because God's love is bigger than your heart. It's even bigger than your sin. He accomplished that on the cross. It's bigger than your biggest enemy. When you are tempted to doubt Him, spread it out before the Lord in prayer. Don't be afraid to just be honest about it and say, Lord, I'm doubting. He already knows that. <laughs> just say, Lord, uh, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm going through. He knows you, and He knows what He's done for you. That he wants you to know. And on top of that, he loves you. And that never changes. I find this to be greatly comforting. In a passage like this, that's only the first half. Next week we're going to see all the answers to it. What God has done to show you how secure you are in his love. Heavenly Father, we need these things. We need to be reminded of these things. You know, you know us too well. In that we do doubt, we do struggle, we do even accuse ourselves. I'm glad you're greater than all these things. And as we learn to come to you, Lord, we find the assurance that our hearts are craving. We find the peace. We find that love. And what a refreshing thing it is. Thank you for loving us so much. Even when you know how much we struggle, you love us still. And we praise you for it. Thank you for your word. Truly, Lord, have its impact in our hearts today. Help us to walk more confidently in who you are and what you've done for us. And we'll praise you for that, Lord. Give us thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.